Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. For this edition of Policy in a Pint, we're taking a look at a hot-button topic that will be on the voter ballot this November, affordable housing. That means how to build more homes that are officially designated as affordable housing for people in lower tax brackets. But it also means how to make general market rate housing more affordable for all Californians. The state legislature is trying to take action by creating a bond that funds construction of affordable housing, authoring laws that create higher density housing, and doing a better job of pressuring cities to meet their housing goals. And some citizens are trying to take action by demanding rent control on a wider range of housing and demanding the repeal of a law that forbids that. Come November 6th, you'll be voting on some of their actions because there's going to be at least one affordable housing measure on the state ballot, and possibly more than one rent control measure will get on local ballots, including here in Sacramento. We're at The Federalist in Sacramento to learn about the latest efforts to create more affordable housing by the state legislature, local advocacy groups, and the construction industry, and what to keep in mind when you're voting yay or nay on them. Welcome to California Groundbreakers. Uh, we are a civic engagement organization focusing on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. And these are cocktail conversations, that's how we make them, to put a drive quote-unquote tough topics into a more relatable, more relevant style, and, and we make them fun by wheeling out the cocktail cart. And tonight we're holding one of our monthly policy and a pint discussions um, about things that are coming out of the Capitol that affect you and me as taxpayers and voters, residents, and Californians. And this year we're definitely gearing up for a lot of policy and a pint events because it is an election year. And the topic this evening is affordable housing on the voting ballot. So obviously, affordable can be put in air quotes in California um, because of the issues going on about high rental and housing prices. But obviously, there is a lot of discussion going on about how to build affordable housing and how to make housing in general more affordable. There is definitely going to be one ballot initiative statewide that we will be voting on, and we're gonna talk about that. And there's also potential other uh, ballot initiatives on a statewide and local uh, level that we should be looking at. Rent control is a big deal. And then also looking at what the legislature is doing in terms of bills that just recently passed and how they're doing, and what's being announced in terms of uh, housing, affordability, construction, and so forth. So basically tonight is whether you are a renter, a home buyer, doesn't matter, you are a voter. So we're taking a look at what's gonna be on the ballot, what you should know as a voter. So come November 6th, you have a better idea of what you think your vote will be. So I wanna give a few special thanks to people who made this event possible. First off to Anna and Marvin Maldonado, Federalists for opening up their doors on a Monday night. And yes. I just wanna say they opened up the doors and then they left, they're not here. So basically <laughs> they left us uh, in the Federalists. So for whatever that's worth, no, we'll, we'll be good. It'll be here when you get back, Marvin and Anna. Also, I wanna thank a few groups that help, it, help me put panelists and this event together. Housing for Sacramento Alliance, Noor Kassar at Housing California, 
Rachel Bardis at Bardis Homes, and Michael Stretch at the North State Building Industry Association. I want to thank my volunteers, uh, Deb and Zach, for helping out with tickets. I want to thank uh, one of my board of directors who made it to the event, J.E. Pano, who's hiding in the back. Thank you, J.E., for showing up. Of course, to the panelists, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to do this. And last but not least, to you, the audience, for showing up. So I wanted to start, I don't want to introduce the panelists. They do the, they do the panelists' introductions better than I can. I'm going to start with the first panelist on my right. And just basically, it's obviously your name, your organization, briefly, what, briefly what you do there, because we'll have questions. And I always like to find out a personal note about the panelists and and how they how the question intersects with their um, their experience with this topic. So I wanted to ask about you, an interesting house hunting experience you have had in California when you were looking for a home to rent or to buy. Funny, sad, depressing, whatever. What was very notable about your house hunting experience? So let's start with the woman on my right. Hi, so my name is Giovanna Fajardo. I am the director with ACE, the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment. Uh, we are a grassroots organization statewide and I've been organizing with them for eight years. I'm also here as part of Housing for Sacramento, which is a coalition of tenants, housing advocates, and labor. Uh, my story is uh, when I moved out with my now husband, we were renting a room with uh, his parents. We set six months tops. It turned into two years, a little over two years, <laughs> until we could finally find a place that was somewhat in our budget. Um, and so we are holding down to that, that house. Uh, the landlord in that house is my dad, and that's probably the only way why I found it. Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming out. My name is Yanni Kazanis. I'm the communications director for the North State Building Industry Association. Uh, we are a local trade association that represents home builders, developers, and about 50,000 jobs here regionally. Um, based on Vanessa's description, my house hunting story uh, is probably weird, which is something she didn't say. Um, so I'm a lifelong resident of West Sacramento. Um, the home that I grew up in was one that my parents hung on to when we moved about a block away. So when it came time for me to buy a house, I bought that house, which they had previously rented, and then that renter moved about a block away to a rental that my grandmother had. So, um, yeah, it's all in the family for us, and uh, I don't know if you'll find a more unique housing story than that one. So, glad to be here. So, I'm Holly Wonder Stiles. I'm the Director of Housing Development at Mutual Housing California. We're a nonprofit housing development corporation. We've been uh, building new homes and renovating uh, crummy apartments in Sacramento for over 25 years. Um, I'm having a little trouble coming up with a story. And when you first mentioned, I don't think you said it had to be in California. So um, I was lucky, um, my husband and I, we bought our home in an easier time in Sacramento. But years ago, I moved to Boston, and that was the most painful um, house hunting experience I ever had. And um, I'm just afraid, I hope things don't end up as bad here as they were there. Thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Scott Weiner. I uh, have the honor of representing uh, San Francisco and northern San Mateo County uh, in the state Senate. Uh, and so uh, I've lived in San Francisco for 21 years. Uh, and when I, um, I have, being from 
San Francisco, I have, it's a perpetually interesting housing story because nothing is ever easy or straightforward about housing in San Francisco. Uh, when I moved there in 1997, I had um, been living in Philadelphia before and paying um, $550 for a uh, pretty decent one-bedroom apartment in a, in a really um, cool neighborhood. Uh, and I went to San Francisco and I blocked out some time to try to find the place. And it was 1997, the very beginning of the dot-com boom. And uh, I thought, oh, it's going to be easy. Um, and so I went and saw a place first thing on this Saturday morning. Uh, and I had a friend who lived there. So he hooked me up with the landlord. Uh, and it was a pretty decent place. And then I'm like, well, I don't want to just commit. And so I'm going to look around. Uh, and so I spent the next few days uh, going from open house to open house where I didn't have a connection to the landlord. And um, there were open houses where I literally had to wait in line just to get in uh, uh, to see the place. Uh, and it was just, it was so over the top. And uh, so I went back and fortunately I was able to snag that original place. And then uh, five years later was my first entry into the housing market. It was right after the 2001 collapse. I figured it's going to be easy. Uh, it was six months into 2002, uh, or actually the beginning of 2002, and it was a mob scene at every open house. And two years later, I was able to fortunately uh, buy a 500 square foot uh, condo, a very modest, small place. Uh, there's no way I'd be able to uh, buy that uh, today. I wouldn't be able to afford my own neighborhood. So those are my exciting stories. And kind of depressing. <laughs> Has much changed since in San Francisco? Probably not. Uh, oh, yeah, it's definitely changed. Uh, the, so that apartment I rented in 97, it was 1050 a month, which I couldn't believe was twice what I've been paying in Philly. That would be a 3000 or 3500 apartment today. Uh, and the place I bought is, it, I mean, it's appreciated. Uh, and uh, again, I would not be able to buy it today. So no, it's gotten worse, much worse. So I know we only have you for a limited amount of time, Scott. So I wanted to, uh, basically, I did want to start off with you. Um, you have been in the Senate for about a, a year, a year. And you seem to be a name connected with uh, bills that are related to housing development and making it more affordable. So I wanted to ask just like a brief overview of uh, a big bill that you passed, that you got passed last year, Senate Bill 35, how that works, I guess, just in, in summary. And then you just recently announced uh, a new package of bills, Housing First. And there were two bills I wanted you to, to tell us about, specifically Senate Bill 827 and 828. So just give us an overview of, of the bill that you passed and the ones that you want to pass. Sure. Um, so before I um, was elected to office in 2010, when I was elected to the Board of Supervisors, I was not a housing person per se, other than uh, being someone in the community who was horrified by what I was seeing uh, around housing and, and saw some of the challenges it created. Uh, but I came into office right at, as the recession was starting to end uh, and spent six years in local office during a huge run-up uh, in San Francisco and became very passionate about housing as I saw some of the, what I believe is a very, very broken system in California uh, where we, uh, it used to be in the, in the old days, we did it the old fashioned way. When, when more people started moving to California, we built more housing uh, and we built enough housing to absorb the growth that was coming here. Then about 50 or so years ago, uh, we stopped. 
we basically um, started erecting barrier after barrier to housing. We decided housing was a bad thing. Uh, we uh, repeatedly allowed cities to downzone, to stop housing uh, from coming in. We decided that housing was a negative environmental impact, if that rings a bell for anyone uh, who knows uh, CEQA. And it was just housing was this bad thing to be avoided. And of course, housing is foundational to pretty much everything else in life, other than like air and water. It's pretty much the basic thing. And so coming to the uh, Senate, you know, I, I decided let's, let's try to make things better. And last year we had a great op opening uh, and we passed a package of bills uh, mostly focused on funding affordable housing because as the federal government has withdrawn, it becomes more and more important for the state to step in and put more public money into housing uh, for low-income people who are at greatest risk of displacement and homelessness. Uh, but also trying to reform the process because I've seen too many examples in San Francisco, and I know it's true elsewhere, where you have a project that is within zoning, whether it's a low-income affordable housing or a market rate project or mixed income, it's within zoning, and it takes three, four, five, or more years uh, to approve it. Uh, and so uh, the bill that I authored, SB 35, uh, it's, a house, it's a streamlining bill, and it basically says uh, that we, we already give goals to cities. Every city in California gets a housing goal for an eight-year period for every income level. Uh, and there was no consequence, no ramification if you failed to meet those goals. And as we recently learned, 97% of cities in California don't meet their housing goals. And so SB 35 says if you are not meeting your housing goals, if you are behind by income level, you become streamlined in whatever income levels you're behind to help you catch up. And what streamlined means is uh, that if someone proposes a project, whether it is um, at any income level uh, that is within zoning, you have to give them a permit subject to three to six months of design review. Uh, no discretionary reviews or appeals, no CEQA, no conditional use. Um, you give them the permit within your zoning subject to your design review. Um, with it for a limited period of time. No, no like 10 years worth of design review, which cities sometimes do use design review as a way to kill projects. So that's the gist um, of the bill. Um, if uh, The bill also provides that if the city does not have local inclusionary, if it does have local inclusionary, that applies. If it doesn't, then it places a 10% inclusionary in those cities that have not adopted their own uh, ordinance. Um, so that's SB 35 in a nutshell. Uh, this year we have two bills, SB uh, 828, which reforms that, re uh, that process for setting housing goals because the process is broken and you have some cities, particularly wealthier cities, that are able to politically negotiate down their housing goals uh, to absurdly low numbers. You may have read in the paper, Beverly Hills had an eight-year housing goal of three units, yes, three units. And, and not to pick on Beverly Hills because they're not unique. There's a whole bunch of cities like that. There are comparable cities with wildly different uh, goals. Uh, lower income communities tend to have higher uh, goals. So it's a broken system. We're trying to make it much more uh, based on uh, projected population and job growth, um, reduce the politics, uh, and make it a little more equitable among similar, uh, similar sized uh, cities. Uh, and then uh, the least controversial bill that I've ever done, SB 827, um, where I am, uh, I think, probably being burned in effigy in some 
uh, areas, and there are some uh, anti anti housing people up in Marin who are producing all these cartoons uh, about me, and so I, f I feel flattered. No one's ever made a cartoon of me before, so I I, so I think I keep tweeting them out. Um, but uh, uh, and SB 827, and you know, it's interesting. The bill at the beginning of this year, when we looked at when we talked in the office about what are going to be like the, the our marquee bills of the year that's going to get a lot of attention, and we thought our net neutrality bill or the 4 a.m. nightlife bill, um, we knew 827 would be controversial. I didn't foresee this level of discourse around it, but whatever happens with the bill, this is really healthy. That whatever people's positions, it's provoked a long overdue discussion of are we serious about having enough housing for everyone? Do we mean it when we say that everyone deserves housing or do we just talk about that? And SB 827 is a pretty simple concept. It says that we should allow more housing near public transportation. We, need, we have a four million home deficit in California, four million homes, and it's growing. Uh, and we need a lot more housing at all income levels, and we should focus that housing around public transportation. Uh, so we have a lot of areas around major transit hubs that are zoned only for single family homes or other very low density. We want to allow small to mid-sized apartment buildings uh, nearby. Uh, we uh, recently made some amendments to try to address some concerns around uh, displacement. Uh, there will be more work in that area um, and other areas as well. The bill is a work in progress and we're going to keep uh, trying to push it forward. So yeah, speaking of the, the controversy, um, many of you may have seen, I, I guess it was a couple of days ago, the New York Times did a, a story specifically on, well, on that bill and Sierra Club was against it and words were exchanged, I guess, at least in print, but it's definitely, a, uh, it, it made the papers back east. So it's a very interesting read. And next up, I wanted to get the point of view from our home builder representatives here um, about what the senators just said about his bills. Uh, and then what, how are you, what are you, are you for or against them entirety, um, parts? Uh, and I know it's different because, Yanni, you, your organization pretty much focuses on market rate uh, home building. And Holly, you're doing affordable housing. But there's obviously common ground that you both have to look at when it comes to to building a home from the ground up. So Yanni, I wanted to start with you, just based on going through the legislature, uh, the senator's bills, other bills, what what are you all supporting? Um, what are the concerns that you have? Basically, just how what the legislators are dealing with, how does it intersect and veer away from the realities of what your uh, members are facing today? And then Yanni, after you, Holly, I'd like your point of view. Uh, sure, I think generally speaking, um it's, uh, it's refreshing uh, to hear someone from the legislature open up this conversation the way Senator Wiener has. Um, and it's certainly a, a long overdue conversation. I mean, you know, he spoke of the $4 million, uh, $4 million home deficit that we're looking at, and that's not going away overnight. It's not going away no matter how much you produce um, in any given year. It's gonna take a while. Um, so anything that streamlines processes, um, gets our members out there building, um, and you can go around the region and see any one of their projects, and there's a variety of them, especially here um, downtown, which obviously is a, um, a hot area of concern um, for housing. Uh, you know, we support certainly. Um, 
And yeah, we do focus obviously on market rate housing, uh, but that being said, there's a lot of different um, types of products that our members are, are building at a lot of different price levels, um, just depending on what part of the region you're looking at. Um, but yeah, certainly anything uh, uh, that the Senator has proposed so far, discussed so far, I think we're generally in support of. And uh, you know, we encourage more members of the legislature, our, our partners at the local government level, um, to come out and, and have a frank discussion about it. We, obviously, it's not an easy thing to do. I know there's uh, kind of some longstanding um, you know, opinions uh, um, out there on what's right or wrong for housing, but ultimately it comes down to we need to build more units. We're not building enough. Um, and if we do anything to um, stall things anymore or, or halt that progress, especially downtown with the way the city's been changing, um, we're not going to be putting ourselves in a very good position um, in the future. Holly, what about you? What's your take? And I actually, I guess maybe this is where I should introduce another uh, bill that we will all be voting on. The, uh, I'm sorry, it's in my notes somewhere. The Veterans and Affordable Housing Bond Act of 2018. Uh, that seems to be probably something you're focusing on right now and wondering what your take, can you describe it briefly for, the, for us and then you know, what's your take on that? And then just in general, what's going through the legislature right now? Well, actually, the California voters have historically been very um, generous in uh, passing housing bonds. Uh, we've had uh, housing, major housing bonds in the past, and the state has used those uh, funds to support a number of affordable housing finance programs. What we found uh, recently uh, is that the, um, the funds were expended. There's no more. And so developers like ours who have been used to using those funds go to look to our favorite state programs and there's just the, the well is dry, there's nothing there. And so the opportunity to replenish those programs, to make them operable again, to help um, build um, affordable housing is um, one of the most, most exciting opportunities we've seen in probably over a decade. And so we're very excited about that one, and that's called the Veterans and Housing Bond, or Veterans and Affordable Housing Bond. There's a local coalition, the Sacramento Housing Alliance, and they are um, a member of the state effort, uh, part of the state effort uh, advocacy to uh, support the passage of that bond. So if there's one thing that I could um, encourage everyone to do, it would be to vote for that when we all have the opportunity in November. But even more than that, if you're part of business associations, if you're part of professional associations, um, if you um, could you know, advocate and um, endorse that bill to build the momentum for public support, that's certainly um, something that I think we can all um, that I would encourage everybody to do on a personal, professional, political, social level. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the, the housing near public transit. And that is, um, that is a strategy that's been recognized as um, beneficial in a number of different ways. And the thing about housing is it's related to so many other different issues. And so, when people have housing that's close to public transportation, or if they have housing that's close, closer to their jobs, um, it means people are driving shorter distances to get to work. And that will help the state 
uh, bring down the greenhouse gas um, emissions and the um, carbon footprint of housing. So, you know, that's something that um, we can, and that we can look at as a, a relation. The other benefit of living closer to, um, closer in, closer to your jobs, closer to public transit, is that um, if you're reducing your commute, it's increasing the time that you have with your family. And many families in California are stretched beyond belief when their parents, one or two working parents, are out of the home for long times due to long commutes. Uh, you know, there are people living in San Francisco, working in San Francisco, uh, commuting way out into the Central Valley and, um, and beyond. So, you know, that's, this is the way I think of that, um, you know, housing is foundational and it's related to so many uh, other public policy issues um, that we have in California. Scott also mentioned how um, uh, earlier in his comments about how uh, zoning can be a barrier to housing. And certainly we know, because the housing we develop is multifamily housing, that many jurisdictions have very limited uh, land available for multifamily housing. And so the, uh, just that, to lift that restraint, to lift that, um, that barrier so that we can look at a site that's close to public transit and it didn't, wouldn't matter how that site was zoned, we could look at that as an opportunity for multifamily housing. And so I think it's a, um, an opportunity creating legislation and we're certainly in support of it. And I have a question actually about the, the bond that's gonna be on the ballot. And I had read recently that the federal tax plan that just passed would might eliminate the tax breaks with that bond uh, that typically we would have had before. Uh, is that a given that it would affect the tax breaks or no? I was just curious in terms of what happened in DC in terms of the new tax bill, what impact would that have, if any, if uh, we vote yes on the, the affordable housing bond? Scott, would you like to take that one? Sure, well, the, so uh, two impacts. Uh, the first impact uh, on affordable housing by that horrendous uh, uh, tax thing that they passed um, <laughs> is that by, by slashing the corporate tax rate by, six, by 60%, or not by 60%, by, um, by 40%, excuse me, 40%? Yeah. From, yeah, from 35% to 20%. Um, sorry, you can see I'm, I wasn't a math major. Um, uh, by slashing it almost in half, frankly, um, it reduces the value of the low-income housing tax credit. Because right now, the, the federal government has basically abandoned affordable housing. The one thing they had left was the low-income housing tax credit, which was a major funding source for building low-income housing. Uh, and that has just been reduced in value because of the corporate tax cut. And so that is going to have a negative impact on financing low-income housing in California. Uh, but with the bond, bonds are paid for um, uh, at least uh, often, not always. This is true for now bonds in general through property taxes. And because there's now a cap on our ability uh, to write off property taxes and all state and local taxes uh, under this new tax law, um, voters may be a little more hesitant uh, to vote uh, for bonds. Another big issue that is 
probably going to be on the ballot is rent control. And so I've read there are efforts to get a repeal of the Costa-Hawkins Act, which uh, prevents rent control, I guess, from going to full force, and putting on the statewide ballot. And here in Sacramento, there are groups gathering signatures for a similar initiative to go on our ballot here. So, Yovana, I wanted you to describe, uh, from what you're seeing, the statewide efforts, the local efforts to make rent control a stronger factor. Yes, so ACE is part of a statewide coalition pushing for repealing a clean cut repeal to Costa Hawkins, which limits the cities that have rent control. Um, and we have over 400,000 signatures statewide um, already ready to, to qualify that, to put that on the November ballot. And then here locally in Sacramento, we're part of a coalition that just kicked off our signature gathering uh, to pass rent control and just cause here in Sacramento. Um, so we have that petition here for you guys to sign. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's for, okay. Yes, yeah, someone's waving over there in the back. So, so describe what Costa Hawkins does or, or will not allow right now, and then also just cause, just for, for those who don't know those two terms. What are the big deals about those? Yeah, so Costa Hawkins uh, limits houses that have that are covered through rent control. So in cities, uh, so single family homes do not get covered in cities depending on when rent control was passed, but specifically after 1995. So newer units aren't covered. Um, and then also, so just cause specifically is something that's really important to our members. So we are um, a member led organization. And so a lot of our members are low-income families of colors throughout uh, Sacramento, mainly in South Sacramento. And so just cause makes it so unless they broke the lease agreement, unless they didn't pay the rent, right, unless they're a bad tenant, they will not be evicted. They'll be able to pay their rent. doesn't make it illegal for them to be evicted. It's just they have more security and, and stability to stay in their home and stay in their community. Um, and so that's something specifically our tenants who are working three jobs or single mothers that are, are not sure um, if they should be requesting a fumigation for um, cockroaches or asking for repairs, they know they can ask those without the fear of having the eviction notice the next day. So Yanni, Holly, and Scott, obviously this is a big deal and people are talking about it. From, your, from where you sit and who you talk with, what is the official stance for your organizations or uh, in the Bay Area on rent control, how it should be done, if it should be done, um, and in terms of November, what voters should consider if something like that gets on the ballot? Yanni, would you like to start? Sure. Um, so it probably won't come as any shock. Um, our group is opposed to rent control, um, and we'd like to keep Costa Hawkins as it is. Um, that being said, you know, um, our members do care about uh, rising rents, rising home prices, that sort of thing. These conversations happen on a daily basis. It's not something that um, we have our ears closed off to, right? And these are serious conversations. Uh, it's just a matter of approach, right? And we feel that uh, it's a supply side thing. Uh, we need to build more. Um, we need more housing coming into downtown, not less. Um, and the big problem really is if you do institute a policy of rent control, whether it be here or across the state, is that investors are going to look at it and they're going to think twice about investing in that city or in some other part of the state, right? Um, and when you don't have that investment, you don't have that progress, you don't have that growth, people start to turn away, and then what you end up with is a scarcity of housing, which is really the last thing we need. I think that's kind of been 
um, reiterated, reiterated to you um, a number of times tonight. And before you, you two, if you want to chime in, I just want to say, because we have a limited amount of time with uh, Scott, let's start, uh, if you have questions, start lining up at the mic. We can start uh, taking questions while all four panelists are here. So while that happens, uh, Scott? Sure. Uh, and before I answer that, I, I, I want to just clarify um, something I said before. In terms of uh, bonds, uh, local bonds are paid for by property taxes, state bonds um, are backed by the general fund. So the, uh, the so the the property tax issue with the federal tax law um, shouldn't be an issue for this bond, but for local bonds in the future, I think it could present some challenges. Just wanted to make that distinction. Um, in terms of uh, rent control and Costa Hawkins, um, I've always been a supporter of rent control in San Francisco. Um, we, um, uh, particularly in expensive markets uh, in San Francisco, is sort of at the tip of the spear. On that, uh, you know, there there are uh, people who are just hanging on by their fingernails, and we have an, an enormous number of uh, not just low-income people but middle-class people who, if they lose their uh, rent-controlled um, uh, unit, they're 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 done. Um, uh, and in San Francisco, actually, um, because we adopted our rent-control ordinance in 1979, our cutoff is is 79. So if you are if you are living a a unit that was built in 78, you're rent controlled. If it was built in 1980, you're not rent controlled. Uh, and uh, I, I am supportive of reforming Costa Hawkins. Uh, I wanna try to strike a balance. Uh, if, you, if you put rent control on new construction on day one, I think it can have an impact in terms of getting those new apartment buildings built. Uh, but I do think it's arbitrary to have a cutoff uh, and so that if it was built after the date, then permanently until the end of time, it's illegal to put it in rent control. I'd like to see some sort of rolling time period, say 15 or 20 years, that eventually um, apartments tra can transition in to rent control. Uh, now, unfortunately, uh, this debate around Costa Hawkins has gotten completely toxic and everyone is in their corner. Uh, and so we, um, I have not seen a willingness on both sides uh, to have a conversation about some sort of resolution, a compromise. Um, the uh, opponents of repeal don't want to move a comma. Um, the, at least the, the leading advocates for repeal, um, I, I was at a forum where I said reform Costa Hawkins and I got hissed uh, because they said no, it's just a complete repeal, which I respect, by the way, that position. Um, I just think we need to have a broader conversation. Uh, and right now, with the, uh, it's now on the ballot, or it will be on the ballot, presumably. And unfortunately, the, the organization that, that is actually funding uh, the repeal effort, an organization out of LA called the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, which is a pariah among all other HIV organizations, a guy by the name of Michael Weinstein, um, he's putting up the money to do that ballot measure, um, but he's not one to negotiate or compromise. So I hope some negotiations happen, uh, but I'm not overly optimistic. Giovanna. Can I add something? So uh, he's funding one of the funders for the repeal Costa Hawkins, but he isn't the one leading the efforts. The effort is led by dozens of tenant organizations and housing organizations throughout the state. And I do want to say that um, the, the phrase of rent control prohibiting or limiting housing has been a myth. Um, I know I was talking to the vice mayor of Richmond where they just passed rent control a couple years ago and he is seeing housing permits come in and it's it's not just 
talking about housing, but affordable housing. And this will help keep the families in their homes until we could push for more affordable housing. And so our organizations have been very open to have that discussion um, and are here to hear answer questions about it too. All right, speaking of questions, let's have the first one at the mic. Hi, I'm Michelle Parasette, and I am a policy advocate with Public Advocates, and what we do is advocate for affordable housing and tenant protections. My question is for Scott. So there's so much talk about 827 right now, and I know you're taking amendments, but I'm really curious if you're going to add anti-demolition language and an affordability requirement. Um, so uh, uh, we are, uh, we're working on some uh, affordability language, and just, but just to be clear, um, SBA 27, uh, as it is right now, it, it defers to local inclusionary and it defers to local demolition controls. So if a local community has an inclusionary program, um, then that will apply uh, to these projects. Uh, and the San Francisco Planning Department did an analysis of the bill and concluded uh, that SBA 27 will result in a significant increase in below market rate units in San Francisco because when you're taking low density zoning and saying, okay, this parcel instead of a, a single family home or a two unit building can now have eight or, or let's say 10 or 15 or 20 units on it, that will bring that entire parcel into the inclusionary program because in San Francisco it starts at 10 units. Or if it's currently zoned for 10 units and under SB 827 it becomes 30 units, you're gonna have more. So by sort of piggybacking on local inclusionary, it will increase the number of inclusionary units. Um, we're looking at what happens in communities that don't have inclusionary. I think we're gonna see more and more communities adopting inclusionary programs after the, the we authorized it last year. Um, but that's what we are taking a look at that. In terms of demolition, uh, the bill also defers to local demolition controls. Um, there are cities in California, Berkeley, San Francisco, others that have very, very stringent demolition controls. It is exceptionally hard to get a demolition permit for sound housing, particularly if it's a multi-unit uh, building. Uh, there are other communities that are more permissive. Uh, so we leave it to local communities to decide for themselves. They can ban demolitions entirely, and SB 827 won't, won't change that, or they can restrict it in some ways. Uh, we did uh, put a few additional provisions in SB 827. One is uh, that if, if, it is, if you're talking about a rent-controlled building, um, they have to, a, a community, uh, and again, and there are places that ban that entirely, um, will have to go through even extra hoops to even consider that. Um, but we also, and we, we modeled this in a, after a program in LA, um, put uh, something called a right to remain, uh, so that if a tenant is displaced, uh, the developer has to basically um, find equivalent housing for the person for up to 42 months in the vicinity so they're not paying more rent than they were already paying and then has to offer them a unit in the new building, a comparable unit at the same rent. So it's called the right to remain um, with a tenant uh, moving expenses um, and then moving back expenses. Uh, so we, you know, we're trying to put some, some good uh, tenant and displacement protections uh, in the bill. So for the question for the podcast is, have you considered land value recapture? Um, so uh, 
that's what uh, uh, inclusionary housing is an example of land value recapture that the larger the project uh, the more affordable units uh, have to be ha have to be provided by the developer right but that's why that's why we're looking at inclusionary in the bill for communities that don't have local inclusionary and that is a form of land value uh, recapture uh, the bill does not preclude and, and, and inclusionary is not the only ex example. There are other impact fees like transportation impact fees and so forth. Uh, and though local exactions are not impacted uh, by this bill, whether it's inclusionary or otherwise. And communities, even though I don't think this is very common, communities have the ability to have scaled inclusionary. You can have a lower percentage for smaller projects and a higher percentage for big projects. And we actually effectively have done that uh, in, say in San Francisco and I know elsewhere where you have some of the big mega projects that that do a higher percentage because economically they can. So local communities, depending on the economics of their community, obviously different different communities are, uh, you're gonna have a different inclusionary percentage that is sort of the sweet spot for maximizing production of below market rate units. Uh, and the bill does not take that away. But we again, we are looking at uh, that recapture or inclusionary, whatever you want to call it, for communities that do not have their own inclusionary program. But I do think we will see more and more local inclusionary programs since it's now explicitly legal. Thank you so much. Yeah. Any other questions while we still have the senator and, here? And if I could just add one thing, uh, I'm sorry to, to blabber on, but um, the what's really important to keep in mind uh, is that when you're talking about land that's zoned for single family homes or really low density, that is A, it's not part of any inclusionary program because it's too, the number of units is too low. And B, it is not, as you just heard from Holly, it's not available for affordable housing developers because affordable housing developer is not gonna develop typically a two unit or a one unit building. You want multi-unit. And so by increasing the density, so we're talking about parcels that are currently unavailable for affordable housing developers, not subject to any inclusionary because they're too low density. By upzoning them in the higher density, they're not subject to inclusionary housing if there is a program, and they are purchasable by affordable housing developer to do multi-unit low-income housing. And I think Holly wanted to add something to that. No, I just wanted to make another point about the um, density bill for uh, housing close to uh, public transportation. And that is that studies show that actually the proximity of public transportation is um, more, has more effect on the behavior of low income people than it does on higher income people. In other words, uh, lower income people who live close to public transportation are more likely to actually use that public transportation than higher income people. And so the opportunity to build affordable housing close to public transportation for low income people, it, you know, it's a, double, it's a double benefit. Next question. And just, yeah, Hello. put your, like, okay. a couple inches from the mic. Better? Okay. Yeah. Um, my question is for those who are uh, opposed to rent control. Um, if we don't create a rent control bill, how can we prevent landlords from drastically increasing rent? And as an example, I have a friend whose parents live in South Sacramento, Mac Road. Their rent went up from $850 to $1250. That's a $600 increase in one year. 
they're old. They're not, they, you know, they have a fixed income. They can't afford a $600 increase every year. So how can we prevent that if we don't implement rent control? Y Yanni? Yeah. You, you look, I'm the only you one, right? Me, so why don't we start with you? You play in yeah. the hot seat. Um, so obviously that's an unfortunate situation. Um, you know, back to our position and how we look at it. Uh, it's a it's a market argument, right? So if you have more units that are being built, and you can hardly go downtown now without um, every block or two seeing um, a new project uh, propping up under construction, that sort of a thing, right? It's going to bring the cost of uh, the cost of rents down. It just is, and we prefer to let the market drive that um, and give power to the consumers that way instead of having it uh, artificially impacted by legislation or a rent control measure. Do you have any other suggestions? Because that doesn't seem to be working. Well, it's one. Well, here's one thing: is uh, we're not building enough, anyways. So we haven't even been able to do what we do best, and that is build more homes. So just adding another factor to that that's going to impede that uh, isn't going to help. So, Giovanna, uh, uh, go ahead. Can I just add that we have? Uh, members right now that are door knocking an apartment complex in South Sacramento that at least a quarter of the apartment complex is empty for renovations um, as they could ra raise the rent in the whole apartment complex and so it's 150 unit and so we have some tenants there that want to get a bigger apartment complex with two bedrooms instead of one and she's on a waiting list while there's whole buildings just empty. And so definitely we need to build and so we're all for building but specifically for these families, what do we do now, right? Have them wait two years living on the street? Um, and so that's why we wanna help stabilize the rent to keep them in their homes for now. Scott? Yeah, and, and I mean, that's why, uh, to me, I, I've been you know, a supporter of rent control because uh, I'm, I agree that for people who are struggling right now, uh, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, it took us about 50 years to get into this hole. And it's going to take us time to get out. And anyone who tells you I have a housing fix that's going to make things better tomorrow has a bridge to sell you. It's going to take time. And so for people who are struggling uh, now, that's why I've been a supporter of, of, of rent control uh, because we want to keep people in their housing while we are also adding a lot more housing to try to stabilize and make things more affordable over time. But that's not going to happen overnight as much as I wish it could happen overnight. And with that, it's a seven o'clock mark, so uh, you can stay for one more? Okay. So I do have a question, actually. I found this very long but and really detailed but really good article on some, I think, curbed LA. It was 25 things that can be done to um, make housing more affordable from a home builder's point of view. Uh, one which is really interesting was allow 100% residential development on commercially zoned properties. LA, according to this person, is the only city that allows that. But the interesting thing was the middle, the, the middle market, I guess, of uh, housing isn't being met. He is, or she, is saying, you know, we have the mega projects, half of the housing is coming from mega projects, size 50 units and over, and they're the most expensive housing type to construct and they take longer to construct than smaller projects. So this is why most new apartments you see are luxury units. Um, and then we don't have to go from one story homes to all seven story apartment buildings with two levels of underground parking. There is housing called the missing middle. 
two to three story duplexes, triplexes, townhomes, and so forth. So it does seem, at least from, from what I see in Sacramento, there's the, the market housing is rates that just to me look like, wow. Um, and then there's a the single family housing that's often built away from transit. Is there a way to do middle, this middle housing in a viable way, in a kind of speedy way? Why, where, what can we do with that middle market of housing, if anything? Let's, let's start with Scott since he might have to go pretty soon. Yeah, well, uh, and uh, honestly, that's a lot of what SBA 27 is about. Because what we've done is, and I, I'm not as familiar with Sacramento, but I can tell you in San Francisco, and I know it's true in a lot of places, what we do in San Francisco, what we've done is 70% of the land is zoned single family in San Francisco, 70%. Wow. And then the rest of it, there's a bunch that's zoned for R2 or R3, so two or three in a building. And then we have a small concentration of land, like downtown, south of Market, Mission Bay, a couple other places that um, are um, some little parts of the Castro and the Mission that are zoned for denser and taller. So the, uh, and so what we've done is we've said, we're going to allow really dense and tall housing in a small part of, of our city. And I think this is true in a, lot of, in a number of cities, which is, it's steel construction, it's the most expensive kind of housing, so it leads to much more expensive housing. And then it's gonna be hyper low density everywhere else in the, in the quote unquote neighborhoods, as people sometimes say in San Francisco. Uh, and uh, and you know, we, we used to build these mid-sized apartment buildings with like you know, four, six, eight, 10, 15 units at maybe three, four, maybe five stories, st wood frame construction. Uh, and then they were effectively banned in many cities by saying you either build really high rise, uh, dense housing or single family homes. And we need to change the zoning to actually legalize those small to mid-sized apartment buildings. That's what SB 827 does, uh, these three, four, five story buildings. We have a question at the mic. Yeah. Um, hi there. My name is Austin. I'm an urban and regional planning student in the University of Colorado at Denver, but I'm here from Sacramento, which is why I'm here tonight. I have a question for Scott Weiner. You mentioned something about that the streamlining bill will kind of surpass the like CEQA in general for the development review. Can you talk a little bit more about what that would look like and how that could potentially be a good thing? Sure, and we now have some projects that are moving forward. There was one in, uh, in Berkeley that just, um, they submitted the application. Uh, it was a long stalled uh, a project, uh, 260 units. It's gonna be 50% affordable, so 130 um, uh, below market rate, 130 market rate. Um, and we have some other um, smaller projects we've heard about as well. Uh, and so what it means is you have to look at the zoning. If someone comes forward and, you know, let's say it's zoned for X height and X number of amount of density, and they propose something with that conforms to that and, and conforms to some of the other standards in the bill. Um, then it's an over the, what we call an over-the-counter permit. Uh, so again, subject to three to six months of design review based on objective design standards. We want communities to adopt objective design standards, not just the you know we'll make it up after the fact. Um, and so uh, they, they have to give the permit subject to that design review. And it's not because it's not a discretionary permit, it takes it out of CEQA. Um, and there are already many different kinds of permits that are not subject to CEQA because they're not discretionary. This adds one more class of permits. Okay. All right, 
right, thank you. Next question. Hello. Um, I'm one of the signature gatherers with Housing for Sacramento. My name is Eric Frame. I'm also a candidate for state senate right here in Sacramento. Um, California has over 100,000 homeless folks suffering on the streets. Uh, in Sacramento, we have about two people dying each week out there on the streets. Um, plus, we have more and more people becoming homeless. Part of the reason is the rent hikes. Uh, and this includes the elderly whose SSI are not going up whatsoever. Um, my question is, would you support the governor or the city to call a housing emergency? And with the housing emergency, we could utilize eminent domain to um, house or shelter people in empty buildings that are already empty right now, such as Arco Arena or the railroad yard, or uh, very, just look around, there's space available everywhere. So would you support a citywide emergency or a statewide emergency to start housing people? Are you, are you asking all panelists or one yeah, in particular? Yeah, each okay. and every one of you can answer. Who wants to start with that one? It's a, I mean, obviously that's a big issue connected, but also separate. So Yanni, what do you Yeah, say? I'll jump in. Uh, look, I think generally speaking, we're all in agreement there's a housing crisis. If you want to call it an emergency, we can, right? Sure. Um, that being said, I mean, uh, Calling on the governor to do something like that is a lot trickier than uh, maybe it sounds like. You, there's a lot of moving parts to that. There's a lot of logistical concerns. There's a lot of conversations that need to be had, a lot of people that need to come to the table, um, that sort of a thing. I mean, uh, I, you know, I suppose I could just uh, defer to the senator here on what his take is, but uh, you know, I think from our perspective, that's a very difficult thing to do. If he decided to call a state of emergency, would you support that? We'll call it a housing crisis, and we agree that there is one. All right, next question. Oh, I'm sorry, is anyone else? Everyone is looking very... Uh, we, we, are, we are in a housing emergency, and if we're going to declare a housing emergency, um, that emergency declaration should include all the tools to fix the housing emergency, including making it easier to build housing at all income levels, making it faster, uh, getting rid of uh, exclusionary zoning that bans apartment buildings, um, all the different things that we need to do um, to uh, fix the crisis. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that uh, eminent domain uh, in some big way is gonna be in any way uh, doable. Uh, the cost of doing that would be absolutely uh, exorbitant and we have a lot of priorities in our budget including health care and we're trying to raise the SSI uh, amount so that we are giving these uh, low-income folks uh, uh, more financial support uh, so there's a lot we need to do but uh, we are in an emergency and we're trying to take aggressive steps to address that emergency uh, that that's the work that I do and, and frankly the governor has been doing as well and I should say before Holly goes we are the California Groundbreakers, we want to do a, a panel discussion on on the homeless issue and the crisis because, I mean, obviously, we only have so much time to talk about housing per se. Homeless is connected, but a separate issue. It's obviously a big issue. So we are looking at having a separate event on that later this year. So something we are focusing on. Any other panelists who wanted to address that? Okay. Holly? Um, I just don't know how you can distinguish between a crisis and an emergency. I think everyone in California knows we're in a housing crisis. We certainly have a homelessness crisis that's more and more visible here in Sacramento. 
um, it's time to um, to declare the emergency and act on the emergency in any way that we can. And you know, it's um, one thing that I like to emphasize again and again is that you know we do have barriers to housing. We have zoning barriers. We have other ways of um, you know that are impacting our ability to build housing and I'm excited to see some some breakthrough and some opportunity creating legislation. But in the end, we can't do it without resources. And so, you know, we need to pass the veterans and housing affordable housing bond. And we also need to look at um, local opportunities to create um, revenue for affordable housing. I think the, the cities that are um, finally uh, being able to increase their um, unit count or their, their building each year are the ones that have passed local parcel tax, um, local bond measures, um, you know, San Mateo, Santa Clara, uh, San Francisco. And so, you know, here we are in Sacramento. I just encourage everyone to keep, keep um, tabs on the conversations with the Sacramento Housing Alliance and locally what we can do to create resources to create affordable housing and to address homelessness. Next, okay, Yovana. So I could add, so yeah, definitely we do need a comprehensive strategy. We all agree there's a crisis. I mean, there's 2,000 people um, living without, on the streets and without a home every, on a given night, right? So it's getting worse, um, and that especially is not limiting our elderly families and um, some are low-income families. We're organizing some apartment complex, Curtis Park Senior Apartment Complex, where they themselves is a low-income apartment complex and they just got a rent hike of $100 over the last year. And so some of those people had to move out. One person was, is renting a garage. And so that's definitely not where we wanna see our families and our elderly people. And so whatever we could do, right, we need to figure out a comprehensive strategy. And so rent control is one of the things that we're supporting as is uh, seven other cities throughout the state of California because we are in emergency. And so we're trying to figure out what we could do to stabilize those rents and keep as many families in their homes as of now um, because it does connect. Thank you. Next question. Hi, I'm Nader Afzalan. I'm a uh, city planning faculty University of Redlands, uh, but I've recently moved to Sacramento. Um, I support 827 uh, bill my understanding is that a lot of people, maybe some people, are opposing that. What are the main things behind that opposition, do you, um, if you feel comfortable, Scott, talking about those? Sure, and I, you know, just to be clear, I, I acknowledge, you know, there, there is there's a lot of support, there's a lot of opposition, um, and I, you know, acknowledge that this is an aggressive bill that does things in a, in a different way by, uh, setting some baselines for local zoning. We've traditionally, unlike every other important area like you know education or healthcare, um, where the state always sets basic standards, uh, the state has basically abdicated on housing until very recently and said, local communities do whatever you want. If you don't want to build any housing, don't build any housing. If you want to have hyper-exclusionary zoning around major transit infrastructure, go for it. It's your decision. Uh, and we're trying to... Uh, change that, and that's a hard change. It's a it's a new thing, uh, and so it's not surprising a lot of local a lot of cities, or especially smaller cities, are coming out uh, against it. 
Um, uh, there are uh, neighborhood associations in single-family home neighborhoods that are they do not want apartment buildings in their neighborhoods, including in my own city. And I've gone out to a bunch of neighborhood meetings in my district, and you know, get to get yelled at, and it's all good. I'm in politics. So to, you gotta, you know, I love my constituents, and sometimes you know we have to yell back and forth a little bit. Um, uh, and then uh, there are uh, you know people who are you know advocates for for low income communities who are uh, you know really concerned about displacement, and I don't in any way uh, disagree with that concern. We have seen huge displacement um, in many growing parts of the state um, in terms of low income people not being able to stay in their communities because of the explosive cost of housing, uh, and we all. We all want to change that. Sometimes we have different ways of getting there. I happen to believe that in combination with anti-displacement um, efforts like rent control, um, over time, uh, by having enough housing supply, you can take some of the pressure off displacement. Other people have different approaches. So there are a variety of perspectives. Um, uh, I respect the folks who are not supporting the bill and we will continue to dialogue with them. And we've accepted some of their amendments. So we... we we listen to everyone, even people who don't like the bill. Thanks. I just have a quick question for you, actually, um, because I, when I was doing research for the, for the questions to ask the panelists, uh, Scott, you were quoted in the LA Times, I, I guess early or late last year after the uh, Senate Bill 35 was passed, that the state will ultimately have to look at bigger ticket items, such as making it more financially beneficial for cities to approve housing developments and to giving state and regional governments a larger role in improving large transit-friendly projects. So I think uh, in the Bay Area, Brisbane was an example they brought up. Uh, it was just made more financial sense for them at the time to approve something that didn't have any housing because property taxes were just low. So that brings up the issue of, I guess, the third rail topic still, Proposition 13, and how that, uh, um, you know, relates to property taxes here in California. Is there any, I, I keep hearing sometimes, oh, pro, you know, Proposition 13, let's repeal or or, or, or do something with it. Uh, I'm just asking all panelists, do you hear, at least for election year 2018, talk about doing something with Proposition 13, making it more feasible for residential property tax to be something that the state would look at uh, or it's just not gonna be touched because it's just too dangerous? <laughs> Scott. Yeah. Um, so uh, you can trace a lot of things to the passage of Prop 13. It was the beginning of the decline of California's public education uh, system. We used to be, before Prop 13, we were in the top 10 in per-pupil funding among the 50 states. We're now in the bottom 10. Uh, we're starting to slowly claw our way up, but we're still, I, I believe, number 41, uh, which is really um, tragic for our children. Uh, we also, uh, 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 Prop 13 poured lighter fluid on the housing crisis uh, because given that uh, property taxes are capped uh, and so you end up uh, having not nearly as much property tax as you would otherwise, whereas if you do commercial development, you get sales tax, maybe a business tax, if you have a local business tax. Um, commercial development is much more lucrative for cities than residential development. And so this is built-in incentive. There is a move, um, 
potentially for November to reform Prop 13 uh, by taking commercial property out. I support that fully. I don't think commercial property, um, uh, particularly large commercial property, should be part of Prop 13. I think it's unfair. The Bank of America building, San Francisco, uh, gets full Prop 13 protection. In fact, even more than homeowners do because you can structure transactions to not trigger a reassessment. Uh, so I support that effort. If it happens, and it's going to be really, really unbelievably hard, but if it happens, um, it'll be good for our public schools because more funding will go in. It will make Prop 13 even more anti-housing because now if you do commercial development, you get uncapped property taxes, you get sales tax, you get everything. If you do residential, you get capped property tax and that's it. And so I'm not, I don't think California will ever repeal Prop 13 on residential property. I just don't see it ever, ever happening. Uh, and I'm just being realistic. Uh, and so given that we have this measure that is unlikely to be repealed, uh, that is really creating a strong financial incentive for cities not to build housing, that's why we have to set rules. Like you can't do low density zoning around public transportation. Um, that's just my perspective on it. Next question. Hi, uh, my name's Devin Martin, and I'm not with anybody. I'm just a policy geek. Um, I So I come at this, I, I hear the gentleman in, in the middle, I'm sorry, I'm terrible with names, uh, representing the housing industry and uh, saying that this is a supply problem and we aren't keeping up with the number of people moving here, and I 100% agree with that. But then I also see the woman who was just sitting on the right saying that, um, you know, the, that we need rent control, you know, and I completely agree with that too. Um, and so it just seems like there's kind of an obvious compromise in terms of if the housing industry would be willing to drop opposition to rent control in exchange for, say, um, you know, certain uh, supply goals being met, uh, if the, you know, low-income housing advocates would say, like, okay, we'll be willing with certain owners' provisions expiring after a period of time, um, you know, provided these housing goals are met, and there's kind of a trade-off there. Do you understand, like, kind of that trade-off that like, okay, we'll, we'll drop some of the more owner stuff for the housing industry and we'll let them have the, the higher, you know, ability to build more and that would bring down the, the housing costs by market forces. It seems like there's a, uh, an opportunity for some compromise there and I don't know if there's ever been any legislation advanced or any pushes on that front. Yovana? So rent control is a compromise for fair rent, right? So it, it limits to a certain percentage. It doesn't mean that homeowners or landlords can't raise the rents. It's a certain percentage and it's once a year. And then that is set by the rent board, which will be elected, which we would hope would be elected here in Sacramento. And so that is a limit. If you are a good landlord, you're not raising the rent 20% or more, then there's no problem. If there's an issue with the home where you need to raise the rent a little bit more, you, you could go to the rent board for like if you need to fix the roof or something you could make asks it's all about fairness the way i see rent control is a speed limit if you're not speeding you're not going to get that ticket if you are cruising and driving the limit you could still go a little bit fast right but it's not saying that you could be going 100 miles per hour and not expect to get a speeding ticket and that's for the safety of like cars so the rent control is for safety for you know fair um, protection. Tenant landlords could get their fair market. Uh, they're for a return, and so it's trying to figure out some kind of limit and fairness for housing for both tenants and a landlord. Yanni. Yeah. So uh, I don't think she's backing down. How's that for starters? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, that being said, look, we can have conversations. Uh, you know, we're certainly open to it. Um, uh, however, I mean, you know who I represent, um, who I'm here on behalf of, and I have conversations with these builders every day, and they're concerned about it. And, you know, uh, off the record, everybody here, they're freaked out about it, right? Because, you know, if they can't meet their bottom line, if the, pen, if the project's not going to pencil out, they're not going to build. And that's, from, that's not coming from me. That's from the people who actually are out there building. Um, so, you know, maybe there is some sort of a compromise to be had. I don't think that conversation's necessarily happened yet. Um, so we'll see. But, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Giovanna and, um, and her crew and, and all the other groups involved are, you know, you know they're full bore in getting the initiative passed. So if it does pass and it does qualify, um, you know, for the November ballot, I think it's going to cause some major issues. Um, and I don't think we want to wait till then to find out what they're going to be. So that's why we're opposed now. So we've got about nine minutes uh, until 7.30. So how about two more questions at the mic? And then I have one last one for the panelists. Hi, I'm Denise Harlan, just a regular, normal, not representing anybody. A former landlord, now a renter, which has been quite eye-opening. As a landlord, I never raised my rent on the tenant more than 4% a year, so I was really nice. Um, just to cover things that went up, but I don't see that happening and it's horrifying and I can tell you going out to look for apartments and places to rent almost every single complex said We are in competition with the Bay Area because people are coming over here By the truckloads and they think nothing of paying $1,800 for a one-bedroom one-bath apartment so we can charge it and we're gonna get it so what do we all do in the meantime? Because I'm going to be retiring and my lease is coming up due and it's like, I'm going to have to get the heck out of California. There's no way that I could even afford to stay here and have a comfortable living and paying, you know. So suggestions from you guys on what we can do? I mean, there's apartment complexes that are booting tenants out to remodel and then forcing them to go rent out another, you know, and charging them $500 more a month. That's just crazy. Why is this happening? Greed, I think it's all greed. Uh, actually, people are greedy, and I think that's what it is. And it's very, very sad, because we're getting, I don't know. So suggestions, what do we do? <laughs> I guess, see, what are the, yeah, uh, this is like the senator said, there's long-term, it's a long-term thing, but short and medium-term, you know, Nothing. what do you... We're just going to have to leave. It's scary, you know? So, Giovanna here from A's. So, there, we're being told it's a 2% vacancy rate. Um, you know, I'm not sure what that looks like. So, the first thing you could do is, is go over there with Michelle and sign the petition for rent control. Sadly, we're, we're hearing stories dozens of people a day, right? They're, they're getting a rent increase, and maybe $50 doesn't seem that much, but when you're getting your rent increase, $50, $75, three times a year, that's big, right? When you're already working three jobs and trying to figure out how you pay your rent, it's a big deal. And so trying to figure out like what we could do um, is, is pass rent control for now, like the eight other cities in, in California that are trying to push for it, and definitely open to a conversation in the meantime. There's a lot of people that are, are talking about moving out of Sacramento, 
but where do they go? They're talking about moving out of the state of California, but where do they go? But there's people coming here, right? Because they're trying to come here for their jobs. And so it's, it's trying to figure out a compromise of somewhere where people could work <laughs> and have a good job and, and live. Um, it's, it's a compromise we're gonna have to figure out that does include other than conversation other than rent control. It's very sad. I was born and raised in California, love the state, but I will be leaving. <laughs> you know, this will force me out. Sad. Well, and, and on that note, too, I, I guess what, are, what is the city discussing? I think I read somewhere that Mayor Steinberg had a, a suggestion about uh, short-term funding for those who couldn't afford rent because uh, um, of, of emergencies and taking out of a, another fund. Um, is, is there something else that the city's talking about? It's on the table that's, that's viable. What are, what are you seeing on the city level, if anything, that would work? Yanni? Yeah, I mean, one thing uh, that, that the mayor's floated out there is this uh, idea of tiny homes, so that's an option. Obviously, not necessarily for, you know, this, um, this group that's more towards the homeless uh, population in the area, but again, it's an idea, right? And there's a lot of ideas out there, but it's just a matter of coming together and seeing what can pencil out, what can work for um, the city, for builders, for community groups, for residents. But again, the whole point of that is we only need to sit down and talk, right? Um, there's no there's no point in any of us getting together and, and knocking each other and, and being uh, aggressive toward one another. Let's just all talk and we can figure this out. I mean, ultimately, I think what it comes down to is we owe it to um, all residents, current, future, um, to have that conversation. And yeah, it's not going to be easy for all of us, but uh, let's finally have it. Holly. You know, we can talk a lot. Uh, we, there's a lot of things we can talk about. But um, in the end, the cities in California that are successfully addressing this problem, starting to uh, make inroads, are those that have created some form of local revenue that will support affordable housing. So. You know, the city has an idea for a 1,000 um, affordable homes. I haven't seen that there's any resources backing that suggestion. And so I would encourage um, anybody here who's interested in this issue to keep reminding local officials that if they want to make success, if they want to make inroads, they need to put their money where their mouth is. And they, if there's no money available, we need to create some. Yovana. And so with the, the emergency fund that's been proposed, it's, it's an emergency fund. So if your car breaks down or certain things like that, but if your rent increases, that's not an emergency fund. That's going to happen, and it is happening. And then you have to prove that you could pay that rent. Right? That's a one-time only. If you're already paying more than half of your income towards your rent, you won't be able to prove uh, that you could pay your rent, and so you won't qualify for that emergency fund. And so definitely I think it's, it's a really good idea as part of a like, package, um, but it's going to be a Band-Aid that's not going to work if it's by itself. And so we are open to seeing what else we could think of together and, and what would work. So I guess, so last question will be from me. Um, we did a series of uh, events last spring on... Uh, the housing market, the ca crazy housing market. And one thing that came up a lot was there needed to be more YIMBYs, yes in my backyards, uh, because right now for city council meetings, pretty much all over the state, uh, at that time it was NIMBYs, not in my backyards, and they were getting the ears of city council members and they were, they were uh, making themselves heard. It seems like 
I'm wondering if that has changed because I hear more and I see more in the in the news about YIMBYs. Yes, in my backyard, it's Bay Area. We have an organization here in SAC that's focusing on that. So from what you're seeing from your point of view, what is, I guess I'm trying to end on an uplifting note uh, in this whole housing issue. In terms of, is, are those two factors, you know, working together, is, is, is YIMBY getting their voices heard? What can we do, I guess, uh, that's the last question in terms of, going to city council meetings, uh, what should we be advocating for uh, as a voter, as a taxpayer, you know, it seems so sometimes frustrating, right? Especially when you're buying, looking for a house or a place to rent. But on this political grassroots level, recommendations for NIMBY, YIMBY, whatever, to get this, you know, the, the needle moved a little bit at least. Who wants to start? All right, Yanni. I'll jump in. Um, so I think, uh, frankly, these days, and you know, not to offend anyone here, but if, if you're on the NIMBY side of things, you're on the wrong side of things. I mean, um, it, it's kind of a, almost a, an arrogant perspective to have because you're preventing um, you know, home ownership or, or the ability for somebody to rent uh, because you already have what you need and that's it and you don't want to see anything else. Um, so you need, to be, you need to be YIMBY, you need to be Yes in My Backyard. Um, I encourage you to check out California Yimby. Um, their executive director was here earlier. He's uh, working closely with Senator Weiner actually um, on a number of his bills. So, I mean, that's really what what it comes down to. I mean, Senator Weiner mentioned it earlier. I mentioned it too. Um, we're staring at a housing deficit of four million homes that we don't have that we need. We are way behind um, the curve, and we need to make that up. And like the senator said, it's not going to happen overnight, and it's not going to happen in a year or two or five or ten. We've got a long way to go because for every year that we, um, you know, keep going and don't build enough homes, which is around two hundred thousand a year in the state that we need, we're we're not going to put a dent in that deficit. So. Um, I would say, yeah, get involved. If you feel frustrated, go to your city council meetings, go to your board of supervisors, let them know what you're feeling, let them know what you're hearing. Um, obviously, educate yourself on the issue. Look at all sides of the issue. I think that's important. Um, a lot of times, you all know, and uh, just as I do in my own life, right, it's, it's easy to get stuck on one side or the other. Um, but I think what's needed now is kind of a balanced approach and a balanced thought process and, uh, you know, all sides to be heard. Holly. I just want to remind everybody of something I said earlier, and that in Sacramento, it's the Sacramento Housing Alliance that is uh, our policy advocate, our policy coalition for affordable housing issues. And so I encourage you all to uh, seek out the alliance, become members of the alliance, participate in its activities, and um, support the measures that we're supporting. Uh, we're part of the statewide Alliance to support the housing bond in November um, So it can it can range from that to sometimes there are particular projects that are being proposed in particular neighborhoods and people who oppose new projects love to come out and Speak against them. It's sometimes harder to keep people out to speak in favor of them. We did have success um, in uh, getting approvals uh, funding approvals for a, um, we call it Lavender Courtyard by Mutual Housing. And one of the main, um, one of the main things that happened at the meeting at City Council was the number of um, people who came and spoke in support of that project, both individuals and organizations. So you can do it on a statewide policy level, you can do it 
with your vote, and you can do it by uh, participating in local activity. Giovanna, last word. So I think we all agree, get educated. Um, our coalition website is housing for Sacramento, which is the number four. We have lots of uh, reports if you like the numbers and reading. Um, we definitely are open to the discussion and, and having conversations and definitely going out to city council and talking to your representative. Um, our, I represent tenants, right, that don't feel that their voices are heard, and so when they've spoken up with city council or their representatives, it wasn't um, what they expected. Um, but definitely, it doesn't matter, right? We need to share, we need to speak up, and we need to defend ourselves sometimes, and so that's why we're here. And at the very least, I guess, vote uh, November 6th. Of, uh, like we said, there'll be one, at least one housing initiative on the ballot, probably more. So this is just the start of the conversation. And we just scratched the surface, but again, I want to thank the panelists for coming out and talking about this. Thank you for coming out and hearing about this. Thank you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Policy in a Pint conversation was held on March 19, 2018 at The Federalist in Midtown Sacramento. Many thanks to our panelists, Giovanna Fajardo, Giannis Kazanis, State Senator Scott Weiner, and Holly Wonder Stiles for joining us. Thanks to Anna and Marvin Maldonado at The Federalist for hosting this event. Also, thanks goes to the Housing for Sacramento Alliance, Rachel Bardis from Bardis Homes, Michael Stretch from the North State Building Industry Association, Noor Kassar from Housing California, and Annie Fryman for their help in putting this event together. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.